As you're doing that, um, I'm going to help you to jump right back into where we were a couple weeks ago. We're going to jump back into Matthew. Uh, if you were here the last couple weeks, two weeks ago was Palm Sunday. Uh, we talked about making sure that we are focusing on the right Jesus and not the one of our own personal preference. Last week was Easter, and we talked about how the resurrection demonstrates for you and I that when we think it's over, it's just the beginning with God in our lives. And now we're going to jump back into the book of Matthew as we continue on this series called Disciple, Living a Life, and Jesus describing in his own words what it looks like and what it means to actually follow him when he calls us to be a part of what he's doing in our lives and in the world. And so we've gone through a number of passages. We've gone through chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Matthew. Now we've been into chapter 7. And this morning we're going to look at verse 7 through 11. And we're going to talk about something uh, that, that God calls us to in our life that sometimes we don't really remember or we forget. And it's pursuing Him. Let me explain this. This is the way, this, the, the way that God works. In, in his, again, in His wisdom, being God, this is the way He set it up. His love for us is so great that He initiates everything. He's the one that pursues us. Before we ever come to a place of surrendering our lives to Him, realizing that we need Jesus and we need His sacrifice on the cross to be forgiven for our sins so we can be embraced into His family, before that ever happens, God is in pursuit of us. That's why when Jesus stepped out of heaven and he became human, he was pursuing humanity so that he could capture us so that we could be a part of his family. The moment that we say yes to Jesus and we come to him, God still comes after us and still keeps us as in his family and pursues us. But something shifts because what happens is when Jesus encounters people and he finally takes hold of them, he says two little words that kind of change the pursuit. He says, follow me. See, what he's saying is, I've been pursuing you, pursuing you finally. I've grasped you. I've taken hold of you. Now you're part of my family. Now you're part of what I want to do in your life. Now it's your job to now learn to follow me. God pursues us so that we can pursue him. So that means that the journey of following Jesus is a constant pursuit of God and what he's doing in us and what he's doing around us and what he's doing in the lives of other people. And that's important because somehow when you and I come to Jesus, we think that the pursuing is done. It's over. God's got a hold of us. Basically, I got my forgiveness. I got my, my fire insurance card, so I get to go to heaven. I don't have to go to hell. I just do time until Jesus comes back, and then we all go into heavenly glory, and we live happily ever after. That's how we describe our Christianity. But what Jesus calls us to is this pursuit that we continually follow him. And that means that every day of our lives, we are looking for and anticipating that God is at work through His Spirit in our lives. So we're positioning ourselves, we're looking, we're anticipating, we're looking to see God work in our lives. That He's alive and He's active and He's real. That's the pursuit. It's not unlike a dating relationship or if you're engaged to be married. You know, when, when you, are, you are falling in love with somebody, there is this natural outflow of a pursuit of them in life. Correct? You want to be with them, therefore you make sure that you orchestrate your life to position yourself to be close to them, to go after them. When Kim and I, before we even started dating, Kim and I started to build a friendship, and right away I knew I was interested in her more than a friendship. Now she wasn't quite keen to that yet, but I remember I made sure that I encountered her every place that she was. When we were in in college together, wherever she was going to be, I made sure I was there. And in one class in particular, I might have shared this before, but, but when, when, when we were in the first couple of weeks of a semester, the professor said, listen, this is the way I'm going to take attendance. It's going to be where you sit. I'm going to use a seating chart. I'll know if you're present. I'll know if you're absent. So you have a couple of class periods or a couple of, couple of weeks to figure out where you want to sit. And on this date, wherever you sit, that's where you're going to sit the rest of the semester. So I knew that day was coming, and I wasn't exactly sure what specific date it was, but I knew it was coming. So every day I got to class early, and it was a pretty full, full class, and I would just 
accidentally leave one or two of my books on the desk next to me so that nobody would sit there. And Kim would come into class, and sure enough, she'd find the one seat that was available right next to me. And I did that for I don't know how many class periods, hoping that this is the day that somehow the teacher's going to say, now we're going to set the seating chart. And that day arrived, and sure enough, Kim comes in, and it happens just out of the blue that the seat next to me is open. And Kim sits down, and I remember just thinking inside, yes! Now I get to sit next to her for an entire semester. She had no idea what was going on. But the whole time I was in pursuit of her because I wanted to know her better than I knew her. I wanted to actually date her. I wanted to, who knows, eventually, obviously, we got married. There was a pursuit involved. And sometimes, you know, not only marriage, we need to be reminded of that. Guys, by the way, when you get married, you still need to pursue your wife. Wives, you agree, right? Okay, three of you. The rest of you will pray for you. So it's a constant pursuit, right? Some of you are thinking, I just want my husband to leave me alone. Please, don't, don't tell him to go after me. But it's the same thing with God. God pursues us so that we can pursue him. Not to pursue him to get to heaven, but to pursue him to follow Jesus in our life. And that's this morning what I, I want to take some time to talk about, what Jesus articulates in Matthew 7. So let me read, starting in verse 7 to verse 11, and then we'll talk about this pursuit of God. So Jesus says this. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you will give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, to really understand what Jesus is saying, we have to actually start at the end and then we'll go back to the beginning. We have to start in verse 11. Because historically what we end up doing in the church when we read these verses is that we pretty much, we we interpret it this way and we apply it to our lives this way. God has given me the ability to ask for anything that I want, and now he's obligated himself because if I ask, seek, and knock, God has to give it to me. So I get him in a corner, I get him over a barrel, and he has to give me what I ask for. That's how we look at it. And that's why many times in our life, we become disappointed with God. Because we think, well, he says I just have to ask, and he'll give me what I want. If he asks, he's going to, if I knock, the door is going to be open. If I seek, I'm going to find. So all these things that I want, he's supposed to give to me. But the reason we do that is because we don't understand what Jesus is talking about in verse 11. Because Jesus said that what the Father will give us is good gifts. What is Jesus talking about when he says good gifts? What is the Father wanting to give to us when we ask and we seek and we knock? That's the key to understanding the pursuit of God. So let me answer that. Three things I just want to touch on. What is Jesus saying? What are the good gifts that the Father wants to give us? That's the first question. Is he talking about our wants? That what, if, we, if we want something, God's going to give it to us. God's going to take care of us. God's going to, if I ask that God is going to have to give to me what I want. We wish it was like that. But if you and I go back a little ways, back into chapter 6, that's why we're going through Jesus' words in order of how he said them. So in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about that you and I don't need to worry about the wants. Because what we should be focused on is what? Is his kingdom and his righteousness We should be focused on what he's doing, not the things that we think we have to have, because we think we have to have something, then that becomes the focus of our life, and we lose sight of who? We lose sight of God. And then we become disappointed with God when he becomes a means to our end. In other words, I want this, therefore God has to give it to me. And that leads us to frustration, and we we don't see that. So Jesus really isn't talking about the good gifts being, I just need to have what God, what I want. God's supposed to give it to me. Why? Because he's the genie in the sky that gives me everything that I want. 
Listen to what John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. He says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything, now that's where we want the verse to end, but it goes on. John says, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. According to what? What he wants. According to his agenda. According to his purpose. According to his desires. Not according to our wants. That's difficult for us. We wish, don't you just wish it was that way? Let's just be honest. Don't you wish that sometimes God was the genie in the sky? And that you just said the words and then, boom, it was there? That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Come on, admit it. Sometimes you want God. It's like, well, I'm not going to admit that because I'm too spiritual this morning. We all feel that way. It's like a kid in a candy store. When I was a kid growing up, when my parents, my dad was speaking at a family camp in Texas, and we got to the family camp the first night he spoke, and then afterwards we went to the snack bar, and we're waiting in line, and so we get up to the, to the, to the counter, and we start ordering food, and, and uh, so the, the person across the counter says, oh, you're, you're John Apsis, referring to my dad. That's my dad's name as well. He said, you're, you're the speaker, right? And he said, yeah. He goes, oh, he goes, well, you don't need to pay because my dad was pulling his, walkie, his wallet. He says, anything that you or any of your family members want the next two weeks is free. I was like 10 years old. I was seriously, I was like, I died and gone to heaven. It's like, really? I mean, like, unlimited soda and candy and popcorn and nachos and hot dogs and anything that I want, I can have. It was awesome. For two weeks, literally, I just walked up and said, yeah, my dad's the camp speaker. Oh, whatever you want. It was awesome. It was great, because literally, it's like, snap my fingers, and I could have whatever I want. See, the problem, when you and I get what we want, it's never enough, and we begin to abuse it. See, because what I started to realize is that I could have everything that I wanted, therefore, I could abuse it. So, horseshoes was huge huge in this camp. It's Texas. Go figure, right? So everybody plays horseshoes. I don't play horseshoes, but I started playing, and everybody liked to bet stuff at the snack bar on a game of horseshoes. Well, I knew if I bet, I couldn't lose. Even if I lose, I'm not out any money. So I started playing horseshoes, a lot of horseshoes. I was betting all kinds of stuff, candy, Coke, whatever. I'll bet you this. And I was losing like crazy. But then I'd walk up to the snack bar, and I'd say, you know who I am. And they'd hand it over, and I'd hand it to a friend, and they'd go, wow. I'm like, yeah, I get whatever I want. You know, I was the big guy on camp, you know, until my dad found out. And then he gave me money to go pay back everything that I had ripped off. And I had to go do it, and I had to confess what I did. And it was horrible. Why? Because in my sin nature, I want everything that I want, but when I get everything that I want, it's never enough. See, so Jesus isn't talking about what we want. It's not just I ask, seek, knock, and then Jesus is obligated to give it to me. There's also a second question. Is Jesus talking about our needs? I just ask for what I need. Come on, that's a noble thing. I just only need these things. So if I ask for them, Jesus should give them to me. Is that what he's talking about? Well, probably not. Because again, in, in Matthew chapter 6, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, look at the, he looked at the flowers in the field. Look at the birds of the air. Do they stress out and worry about their food or what they need and how beautifully they're clothed? And they worry about the roof over their head and clothes and food? No, none, they don't worry about any of that. So he's saying, listen, if you are in pursuit of me, you seek my kingdom and my righteousness, and you put me first, all those things that you are worried and concerned about, all your needs will be met. So what he's saying is he's not saying that somehow you and I need to focus on what we need and constantly ask him, because he will take care of that. See, because if that becomes the sum total of why we follow Jesus is so that we can have what we need, then eventually we'll get dissatisfied with that. That will become the focus. We will lose sight of who Jesus is because all we really want is what we need. That's why when Jesus, remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 and remember the people followed him? You know why they followed him? Not just because they saw him produce like something out of nothing, 
but because they were still hungry. He said, man, this guy's a free meal. I'm going to follow him. He just produces food. I'm going to go after him. That's why when Israel, you remember Israel's journey, God sends Moses, eventually does these miraculous plagues to get Pharaoh's attention, gets Pharaoh's attention. He, uh, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. They come to the Red Sea, which is crazy. Jesus, or God parts the sea through Moses. Dry land, wall of water on either side. They get out, and now they're in the desert, and even leads them to the, to the, the threshold of the promised land where they're supposed to go. And then they send in the 12 spies, and 10 of them come back and say, this is absolutely impossible. And then two say, no, we can do this. What's happened? What happened from the time of the Red Sea to the time where they got to the, kind of the threshold of the promised land? They got out into the desert. What's the first thing they started to do? Complain. And what did they complain about? This is what they said. Hey, at least when we were back in Egypt, even though we were slaves and we were working hard, at least we had three squares a day. At least we had the food that we need. We had the water that we need. We had clothes on our back. We had a roof over our head. At least we had all that. Now this, this, this guy, Moses, leads us out into the middle of nowhere, and so they start complaining. And what are they complaining about? Their needs. They complained about food, so God gave them manna. They complained about that, so he gave them quail. They complained about water multiple times, and God provided that. What was their focus? Their focus wasn't the miraculous power of God in them. Their focus was their needs. And when they focused only on their needs, who did they forget? They forgot about God. So Jesus wasn't talking about wants. He's not talking about needs. What is he talking about? What Jesus is talking about is he's talking about the presence of God in our lives. Let me explain. So when you read through the Gospels, you see that you have four Gospel writers who, when you put them all together, you get even a broader picture of what Jesus did and what he said. And in the same passage or the parallel passage in Luke's gospel, Luke actually gives us a little bit more information than Matthew, and he actually gives us exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, the Father giving us good gifts. Listen to Luke chapter 13, or chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus says, If you, then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So what is Jesus talking about when he says, ask, seek, and knock? He's talking about the presence of God's Spirit in our lives. That's what we are to be asking for, striving for, and pursuing after in our lives. The gift of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit in a moment, but I want you to get the big picture. Because Jesus is being very specific here about what we're supposed to ask, seek, and knock for. But I want you—I I understand this is true even in first service, and it's true here— When I say the two words, Holy Spirit, all of us have a preconceived notion of what I'm saying. And it comes from your background, your theological persuasion, or your experience. Now, some of you, when I talk about the Holy Spirit, this is what you think. You think, man, it's about time we talk about the Holy Spirit. We are not Pentecostal enough. Pastor John, go for it, right? Some of you are going, yeah, come on, get him. Then there's another group that you're like, yeah, I know the Holy Spirit's supposed to work. I see that he's present in scriptures, but I'm not quite sure how he works, but I'm really hungry to see what God wants to do. Then there's a third category. When I say the name Holy Spirit, you're absolutely freaked out right now because you've been in one of those Holy Spirit churches, and it's weird, and it's crazy, and people do strange things, and I don't even want to go there. So just keep it safe, Pastor John. Don't go that route. That's kind of where we all fall in. And the problem is, is all of us miss it. All of us miss what God wants us to understand about the good gift that he wants to give to every person who follows Jesus. The fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And for some of us, 
we have never experienced that. And what I'm talking about is this. You understand the way that Jesus worked is that when Jesus came and then he died and he rose again and he told his disciples before he died, he said, listen, he said, I, when I am gone, I am going to send you another comforter or another counselor, depending on what translation you have. He says this throughout the book of John. And what he says, he chooses his words very carefully because he says when he uses the word another, he chooses the specific Greek word that says another just like me. Not another of a different kind or different substance. Another just like me. What he's saying is, I'm going to send you my spirit. And the Holy Spirit is just as much of God as Jesus is God. And he sends his spirit. He promised that to his disciples. And in Acts chapter 2, guess who shows up? The Holy Spirit. To live inside of those who choose to follow Jesus. Let me explain this way, and we'll talk more about this in a moment. But in a nutshell, we could go on for hours about this. But when you say yes to Jesus, the Bible tells us that we receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit in us for the future, that we belong to God. But there is something in our experience in following Jesus that eventually we get to the point where the Holy Spirit finally gets all of who we are. And at that moment, he infills us and empowers us to live beyond our own ability. To live beyond not only our own ability in our daily lives, in the struggles that we face, in the challenges that seem overwhelming, but way beyond anything that we could do as a part of his mission and purpose in the world. And you and I have to realize that's the good gift that the Father wants to give to us. The question is, are you and I willing to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Are we afraid that we'll be out of control or afraid that things will get crazy? The Holy Spirit is not about craziness. Humanity is about craziness. The Holy Spirit is about the power that God wants to bring to our life to transform us and transform the world. That's why the Holy Spirit was given. So understanding that, how do we pursue God? How do we pursue God's presence in our life? How do we pursue the Holy Spirit's work in our life? Jesus tells us, look at verse 7 again. Jesus says, seek. He says, seek and you will find. Seek the presence of God. Seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the good gift that the Father wants to give you, and you will find the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Seek, that means, or excuse me, I skipped, I want to go back. Ask, let's go back to the first part of verse 7. Ask. So Jesus says, and ask and it will be given to you. So Jesus tells us to ask. Asking means that I daily come to a place in my life where I am asking God to fill me with his spirit so that whatever I go through in that day, I am not going in under my own power and my own ability, but under the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because in order for you and I to effectively follow Jesus, you cannot do it in your own humanity. You can't do it. Even our salvation is supernatural. God's forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross, that's supernatural. Therefore, following Jesus is supernatural. That means we have to constantly come back to a place where I ask God to fill me with his presence through his Holy Spirit. And when Jesus uses the word ask, seek, and knock, all three of those are in the present tense, which means keep on asking. Keep on doing this over and over and over again. Why? Because there's going to be moments in your life where you forget that you need the fullness of the Holy Spirit in order to address what you're facing in each day and each moment of your life. It is so easy for you and I to just live out the Christian life and do the church thing and and live out a routine and never see the dynamic power of God's Spirit in our life. Christianity was never supposed to be boring. It was never supposed to be easy. It was never supposed to be comfortable. We have created it to be that. It is supposed to be filled with power and danger and excitement 
and challenges and discomfort. Why? Because God pushes us beyond ourselves. And then as you and I seek to follow Jesus, you and I will always find ourselves getting beyond ourselves, getting in over our head, where the only way you and I are going to have the right response in certain situations is because God's power shows up and his spirit fills us. And we, we exude and we, we allow to come out of us the fruit that he produces in us. That's a work of God. This last week was probably one of the harder weeks of my life and our family's life in a while. Um, some of you know we've been praying. Uh, Kim took a tumble down our stairs at the beginning of the week. She got a concussion, and she had a compressed disc in her back. Not a fun experience. A lot of pain for her. And so in the intensity of that, I was jumping in more to help at home because we have a little foster baby. He's precious, but he's a baby, and he requires a lot of help. And so in, in, the, in the midst of all of that, our dog, who's been a steady in our family and like been a family member for eight years, uh, gets a brain tumor and dies two days later. So this was like Courtney and Jordan's like bud. I mean, they've grown up with her. And so in the middle of all that, and then we just came through Easter, and it's been an intense season, and with, with the building process, life is really intense. So one evening, I'm sitting down on my computer to catch up on email and try to catch up on things I missed during the day. Kim's in a lot of pain. The kids are trying to get stuff done in the other room. I've got the little man in my hands. He spits up all over me, and then I'm looking. I've got my computer here. I'm like, at least he didn't spit up, and I look over, and sure enough, he spit up on my computer, so I'm putting that on the ground, and in that moment, I'll just tell you, it was not one of my best moments. <laughs> what came out of me wasn't heavenly. It was more hellish at the moment, and my kids can tell you that. I was frustrated. I was overwhelmed, and I was just like, I just, God, can, I can't take any more. Like, why is this happening? And then, I, and then Kim and I, as we talked through the week, and there was just those moments where I just felt like, oh, and she said something, she goes, you know, and she just started sobbing. And she said, I have not had the connection with God that I needed this week. I have not spent time with him the way I know that I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And see, because what happens when you and I go through life and life applies the pressure, what's inside of us comes out. You can't control it. See, what should come out of us when the pressure is applied, when we get squeezed, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, those things. That wasn't coming out of me this week, I'll be honest with you. The reason why is that in the process of being busy and overwhelmed, what's the first thing that you and I push back on? Let's just be honest. Connecting with Jesus, we do. I'll have time. Oh, I'm too busy this morning. I'm too busy tonight. I'm too tired, whatever it is. And Jesus is saying, no, ask again. Ask for the fullness of the Holy Spirit because you're going to need his power in your life and what you're about to walk through so that when you get squeezed, the people around you see the fullness of my spirit coming out of you. It's the process of surrendering ourselves so that that garbage that's in us gets filtered out by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life so that what comes out is what God wants to come out. Then now to the second thing going on in verse 7, to seek. How we pursue Jesus, we pursue the Holy Spirit through seeking. He says, seek and you will find Again, in the present tense, continue to seek and you will continue to find. Stop seeking and guess what? You won't continue to find the work of God's spirit and his power in your life. See, sometimes I think we have thought through this process of Christianity and we've made it a spectator sport, which means that once I come to Jesus, I get to sit on the holy bench on the sideline for my whole life and I applaud all the really good, talented Christians as they go do God's work, but I sit back and I just kind of wait and do time until Jesus returns. That's kind of our perspective. We wouldn't say that that's what we're doing, but that's kind of the life that we live out. But you and I have to understand that seeking is active. Seeking is motion. 
Seeking is action. And that means if I'm going to seek in order to find God's work in my life, that means I have to move off the bench. I have to get in the game. I have to actually initiate something to seek and go after God. Now, there are times and seasons where God says, wait. He did throughout Scripture. But he doesn't say wait all the time. In fact, there's many times where he's waiting for us to stop waiting and to move because he's at work, but you and I are too slow to respond. A perfect example of this is in, in 1 Samuel chapter 14. There's this amazing story and comparison between Saul and his son Jonathan. So Saul is the king, and he's got his army with him, and he's, he's seeking God, supposedly. But what he's doing is he's afraid. They're about to take on the Philistines. He's not sure what to do. So he literally, he's hanging out under a pomegranate tree, trying to figure out what he's supposed to do with his army, doing nothing. Jonathan gets an idea. And so he pulls his armor bearer over and he says, listen, I love the conversation. You should go and read it. He said, basically, this is my paraphrase. Let's go pick a fight with the Philistines. That's what he told his armor bearer. And then he says this phrase. He says, perhaps the Lord will move on our behalf. He didn't say, I'm sure of it. This is just a chance, a risk, that maybe if we engage the Philistines in battle, God's going to show up. But the only way we know if God's going to show up is if we engage and we go first. So Jonathan convinces his armor bearer that they have one sword between the two of them to take on the whole army of the Philistines. Not a very good military strategist. But that's okay. He's got faith that his dad doesn't have. So while his dad's waiting under the tree with the army, what's Jonathan doing? He and his armor bearer climb up to where the Philistines are, and it says in the first acre that they encountered, they take out 20 Philistines. Two guys and one sword, they take out 20 Philistines. Starts this chaos in the Philistine camp. They start turning on each other. And then Saul finally thinks, oh, maybe I should join the battle now. And he does. And that day, Israel routed the Philistines. Why? Because Jonathan believed that God was at work under the pomegranate tree? No, on the battlefield. And see, some of us have yet to experience the fullness of God's spirit and God's power through our life because we're still sitting on the bench. We haven't even gotten to the game yet. We're watching everybody else, and God's saying, I'm waiting for you to initiate because there's something powerful I want to do in your life through the work of the Holy Spirit, but you can't experience it sitting on the bench. It's time to get in the game. That's what seeking is. It's action. It's activity. It's stepping into that and discovering what God is doing, discovering what God is doing around you. God is always at work. His Spirit is always present, but He's waiting for us to realize that and step into what He's doing. And then the third thing that Jesus says and how we pursue God and the fullness of His Spirit is to knock. He says, knock and the door will be open to you. What is knocking? Knocking is an interruption. Knocking is not just kind of showing up and waiting for something to happen. Knocking is actually showing up and seeking, but then you get to the point where you actually take action to initiate something that interrupts somebody else. You ever been at home at the, in the evening and you're tired and you don't want to be bothered and somebody knocks on the door? Anybody experienced that? And it's a salesman or somebody, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or somebody who's come to your door and you really don't have time for them. They're just a big interruption. But what do they do? They force you to have to make a decision. Either you're going to get up and get the door or you're going to find a way to shut the lights off and hide in the back of the house, whatever it is. But that knocking is an interruption and it's causing you to make a decision. Jesus is saying in the pursuit of God, you and I need to come to God continually. And when we come to what we perceive as a closed door, don't run from it, knock on it. Because here's the thing, we always say, well, you know, when God closes a door, he opens a window. No, maybe we need to change it. When we come to a closed door, God may say that's a closed door, but some of us don't even bother knocking. We just move on. 
We put up no, resi- no resistance, no fight, no, no challenge, no going after it to see if maybe God is on the other side of that door. So we don't even knock, we just move right on. Sometimes if you and I really understand the way God works, our life in following Jesus is a series of doors that God is requiring us to knock on. And if we don't knock, we won't see what's on the other side. We may knock and the door may not open necessarily. And God may be saying, you're knocking on the wrong door and he'll guide us to the right one. But if you and I don't knock, we don't know. And, you know, it's interesting watching, you know, we, we give updates each week on Right Size and try to keep us all up to speed. But there are so many things that happen from one Sunday to the next in this process. I'll probably have to go back and do a timeline. And really, almost all of them are doors that we have come to that are closed. And then we knock. And knocking comes through praying. And we knock again. And what's amazing is eventually God opens the door. And God gives us favor with the seller. And God gives us favor with the city. And God moves on the hearts of people to sacrificially give over $135,000 in less than two weeks. God's blowing doors open. But we're knocking on them. If for some reason we get to a door in this process and God doesn't open it, then we know that he's guiding us another direction. Right now, it seems that he's just leading us forward and doors are opening and doors are opening so that we eventually can do what God, we feel God's called us to do is purchase the building on runway. But you and I have to understand the way that God is at work. He wants us to ask ongoingly. He wants us to seek. He wants us to knock. Why? Because it's at those moments that he comes by the power of his Holy Spirit and he works in and around us. But we have to constantly pursue his activity in our lives. Final thing I want to talk on three things is you may be asking why. Why do we pursue? Why can't Jesus just pursue me and then I'm good He's caught me. I'm not going anywhere. I'll stay right where he wants me to be. I won't wander off and I'll wait till he comes back. Why do we have to do this? Why is this part of what it means to follow Jesus? Three things that Jesus highlights. Verse eight, the first thing is because God will fill us with his spirit. It says for anyone or everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. In the pursuit of God, those things that we are asking for and seeking for and knocking after will be the things that God shows up through the power of his Holy Spirit in our lives. It's that pursuit. And it's something that happens in your following of Jesus that you finally get to a place. Now, for some people, this happens the moment you give your life to Jesus. For other people, it takes us a little longer. But you finally get to the end of yourself. You finally get to the place where the Holy Spirit who was given to you at the point of your salvation now has fully gotten a hold of all of who you are and now you are filled with his presence in your life because you've asked and you've seeked and you've knocked and you've pursued and because of that, God has answered. Now, please hear me in this. We're not gonna, this is not an exhaustive study on the Holy Spirit, but I'm telling you, for some of us in this room, you're afraid You're afraid when we talk about the Holy Spirit, and I'll tell you why you're afraid. One reason is legitimate, because God's power sometimes can be scary. Second one is because all you've seen is abuse. When it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit, all you've seen is manipulation. You've seen people out of control. You've seen environments where you think, what in the world? How is that even God? And you don't even see anything that really would seem to be God. And because of that, you've run the other way. And because of that, you have yet to experience a whole dimension of what God has called you to be in following Jesus, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you a a short kind of synopsis here so we understand the way this works. Okay, the people of God 
cannot fulfill the mission of God without the Spirit of God. You can't do it. We think we can, and we try really hard. We try in our best efforts to plant amazing, awesome, killer churches that will attract thousands of people and do great things. We'll even do good deeds in our community. We'll care for the poor. We'll do all those things. And you know what? You can do all of that without God. The world does it. The, world, the world's great at entertainment. In fact, the world's pretty, pretty good at helping people who are in difficult situations. It's great. But what does the church have that the world doesn't have? The power of the Holy Spirit? Or do we? See, the dynamic is that when we care for the poor, we're not just caring for the poor because they're poor and we feel bad or pity for them. We're caring for the poor because people are poor and broken because of a brokenness in their relationship with God, ultimately. See, poverty is not a monetary issue. Poverty is a spiritual issue for all of us because whether you have a lot of money in the bank or no money at all, we're all spiritually poor. Therefore, you and I have to understand that what the church brings to the equation, what a believer brings to the situation is the power of God through the Holy Spirit that transforms not just somebody's economic status, transforms their soul. That's why you and I can't do anything apart from God's Spirit through us. Remember what I said during offering? God has chosen to use people to accomplish His purpose, and the way He chooses people is through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to change the world. That's why when Jesus died and then He rose again, remember He told His, he told his disciples in Acts 1 He said, listen, you got this big mission ahead of you. It's totally impossible, but you're going to need to wait because you can't leave until you receive the Holy Spirit so that you will have power to be my witnesses. Now, the reason this is so important is I don't know what your upbringing is. I don't know what your theology on the Holy Spirit is. I don't know what you've been taught. But I know when I read through the scriptures, and again, this is not something we divide over. I have lots of friends in the body of Christ in Simi Valley in around the country that would be considered non-Pentecostal, and we get along great, and we hang out. But when it comes to this area, I am convinced that what happened in Scripture didn't end at the end of Scripture. That's why it's called the book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Disciples, the Acts of people who followed Jesus for the last 2,000 years. Miracles still do happen. People are freed from demons. The power of God does show up in people's lives. But something happens in our culture where we become afraid of God's power, so we try to manage it. We try to control it. And one of the areas you and I will discover God's power is not necessarily in this room. See, we gather and say, okay, we just need to get the Holy Spirit to show up. By the way, he's already here. We don't have to do anything to get him to show up. But you know where he's most active? Out there. Read through the book of Acts. There's only one miracle that happened anywhere near a church. The rest of them happened where? Somebody's house, on the street, in a prison. That's where miracles happen. Why? Because God's people are outside of themselves. They're encountering things that are way beyond them, so God's power has to show up in their life. And that's why when we get to this, and we'll get to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus sends out his disciples to, in power to do what he did. That's what God's calling us to do. So we are about what? Helping at the Samaritan Center, doing laundry love, going to Haiti, going to Brazil, going to the Dream Center, doing all those things. But we won't do those things to check off a list to say, hey man, we're a really good church. We do really good deeds for people. No, we do it because we want the power of God to show up in our lives to transform people's lives. That's what it's about. But it only comes when we seek after God's presence and we finally get to the place where we say, you know what, I'm not going to be afraid of what God wants to do in my life. 
And just a little side note, by the way, I haven't even mentioned the gift of tongues yet, because you know, some people are saying, well, you know, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. Now, tongues is a gift that God gives to people, and many times that is in conjunction with being filled with the Holy Spirit. But it is not the only evidence of God's presence through the power of the Holy Spirit. I know people, when I look at their lives, I would say, you know what? That person seems to demonstrate more of what it means to be filled with the Spirit than that person over there who speaks in tongues. Tongues is not the litmus test to say whether you're filled or not. If it were, this is the great thing about the way God works. Read through the book of Acts. You will not find a formula. You will not find a formula for salvation. You won't find a formula for being filled with the Holy Spirit. God did that on purpose. You won't find a formula for miracles, by the way. If someone teaches you how to do miracles and they give you a formula, they didn't get it from the Bible. That's why Jesus spit and put mud on somebody's face one time. I think it was just to mess with us. See, there is no formula. I'm using spit this time. Really, because we love formulas. God doesn't work by formula. I have the gift of tongues, but it is not a gift that is a public demonstration of tongues where I've been in a public gathering where I've been given a tongue that I'm supposed to give and someone gives the interpretation. I've never had that, but I speak in tongues because I think there is a gift or a dimension of the gift that Paul experienced when he says, I speak in tongues more than you all. That is a personal gift that God gives to you when you surrender yourself fully to the Holy Spirit. That now I have the ability to pray when I am connecting with God and I am pouring out my heart and I'm surrendering to Him, I start to speak in tongues because my English language doesn't do justice to what my heart feels. I don't understand what the the language is, but I know God does. That's that dimension. Somebody once told me, not that every situation you have to speak in tongues to be filled, but they said it's interesting that God would use the gift of tongues to kind of show up more prominently in that because it's about surrender. And if you're willing to babble like a child, then maybe you finally reach the point where you've gotten over your own pride and you're willing to surrender to God. Not saying you have to speak in tongues. That's not it. People make it about tongues. It's not. Jesus didn't say in Acts 1, you just wait and you will receive the gift of tongues. And that, no, he didn't say that. He said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That's why the Holy Spirit's given. That's the good gift that the Father wants to give to you and I to accomplish the life he wants us to live and to accomplish his purpose and mission and to extend his kingdom in our lives. See, you and I can work really hard at doing without him. I did it for four years in a church plant in Ventura. I pastored a church without the power of God and didn't do it very well. Looked pretty good on the outside. We got people to show up. Some good things happened. But I wasn't surrendering to the Holy Spirit. I was trying to orchestrate until finally God, finally God humbled me and reminded me that Jesus is the Lord of the church. You're not. And the power of the church is not your ability to speak or your ability to be dynamic. The power of the church is the Holy Spirit through the people. That transformed me. I went to years of Bible college and couldn't figure that one out until God had to humble me in experience to say, you're not God and you need the work of the Holy Spirit because Jesus is in charge. That was hard. I was so glad that God humbled me because now... The success of New Hope doesn't rest on me. Guess who it rests on? Not on you either. It rests on Jesus and the power of his spirit through us. The only thing you and I do is surrender and be obedient and then watch God do what he's going to do. That's what they did in the book of Acts. Crazy stuff happened. Why? Because they were all in. None of them were on the bench. There were no bench warmers in the book of Acts. They were all in. And God did amazing things in them. And then the second thing why we should pursue God is that God will provide for our needs. Jesus goes on, verse 9, 10. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? What is Jesus saying? He's using a ridiculous example. If you, as a parent, have a child that you love dearly, 
and they have a legitimate need in their life, and they ask you, can you provide this for me? Are you going to give them something they don't want or need or the opposite of what they're asking for? No. If you know they really need this, what are you going to do? You're going to find a way to get them what they need. That's what Jesus is saying is, if the Father in heaven is so much better than us as parents, if we ask him as we're pursuing his purpose in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to provide for us what we need. Listen to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus said this, just a couple of verses from where we are right now. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. What are all these things? All of our needs, the things that we are focused on. Those things will be added to us as we what? Seek him first. And then probably one of the most powerful verses, I think, in all of scripture. Second Peter verse one, or chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says this, his divine power has given us everything we need for God, a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Did you hear what Peter just said? Through God's power, which we know works out through his spirit, God gives us everything we need to live the life that he's purposed us to live. You say, well, no, I don't have everything. Yeah, you do. You have the Holy Spirit, you have everything. As you seek God and let God's spirit work through you, guess what? You... God will take care of you. God will provide for you. God will make sure that your needs are met. I have seen that since the moment that Kim and I got married. We've always been convinced of that verse, of, of what Peter said. God's given us everything. Therefore, as, as we pursue him and we, we seek our best to sell out our lives completely to follow Jesus, he will always take care of us, and he always does. I'm telling you, there's been times in our life where it's been financially extremely lean. And even honestly, when we've come through right size. I mean, Kim and I, we were, we were as much as we possibly could give. We gave more than we knew that we had because of bills and things. And I'm telling you, over the last two months, I don't know how we're making it financially. It's not because we're getting paid and the church takes care of us, which is wonderful. But we were giving more than we had. And how in the world we're making bills, I don't know. God does. I'm telling you, it, it's amazing to see that God, Peter knew what he was talking about. The Bible's true. We have everything we need. When Kim and I transitioned from Oregon, moving back down here, when we first came down, we, we knew when we moved to Oregon, one of the big upsides of moving to Oregon, despite all the rain, was that it's a whole lot cheaper to live in Oregon than it is in Southern California. I'm telling you. It's like half the cost to live in Oregon as it is in Southern California. You have no sales tax. The housing cost is lower. Everything's lower. It's great. So when we, we knew that God was calling us to come back here, we thought, we know what that means. It means it's going to cost a lot of money to do that. So we said, okay, Lord, we know that this is where you're calling us. We're ready to move. And so we started looking for housing, and we knew how much we could afford in rent. And so we're looking. Kim was meticulous every day, checking Craigslist, looking at all these different websites, trying to find houses, and everything it either would go too fast or it didn't work. It wasn't the right size. We needed different things. And so we're just looking, and finally we're at the point where we were coming down here one last time before we moved down here to look for housing. Literally, the day before that we're supposed to fly down here, Kim looks on Craigslist and up pops this house. Now, the interesting thing about this house that pops up, it's right in our budget for what we can afford. And what's interesting about it is that the first time that Kim and I came down here, we drove around Simi just trying to get to know the area. I grew up in Van Nuys, so I kind of knew it a little bit. But we're driving around, and we drove up in, in kind of on the east side. We drove up into some hills that were in some really nice houses, had really good views of the valley. And I remember telling to Kim, see, I'm, I'm a little bit more pessimistic. Kim's more optimistic. 
I looked up like, honey, come on. We're wasting our time. There's no way we're living in this neighborhood. And we looked, so there's a couple houses for rent, and we knew our budget. And so the houses that were for rent were like seven to $800 more a month than what we could afford. I'm like, what are we doing in this neighborhood? So we drove out of there, and I'm thinking, I'm just not saying anything to Kim, but I don't think we're going to live there. Famous last words. So when this house pops up on Craigslist, it's right in our budget, and it's on the street. It's on Geronimo where we drove. And at first I'm like, is that Geronimo? Is that the street we drove on? So we get on Google Maps and we look at it like, that's the street. I'm thinking, that's the street I said I could never live on. So we fly down here, and because the house was ridiculously cheap, five families showed up at once to look at the house. So the poor renters that were there, we all converged at once, and we're like all going through their closets and everything. It was like totally awkward. And then we get out to our car, and Kim calls the landlord, the owners that actually live up in Washington, and she says, hey, we're really interested. This fits the right. We have three bedrooms. And it has a decent living room, so we can have meetings. It would be great. We'd love to take the house. She said, you're the first one to call. It's yours. You know what's crazy? More crazy than that? A couple months ago, because bills were high, we called them and said, can we have a rent reduction? They said, yeah, you can. Are you kidding me? Why? Because God said, I've given you everything you need to live the life of purpose you to live because you've chosen to pursue me. God, I can give you story after story after story after story. Why? Because God takes care of me. Our focus when we came down here wasn't a house. Our focus was God's mission through New Hope. Guess what? God provided a house. You know, I tell you that story partly, too, because I've had some people who come to our house and go, wait a second. How in the world is the pastor living in that house? And I, I'll tell you why. Because the two houses that are for rent across the street are going for $800 more a month. We wouldn't be living on that street apart from what? God's provision. That's the way that God works. He will meet our needs. And then the final thing, and I'll close with this, final point, is that why we should pursue God is because God loves his children. Jesus goes on, verse 11 again, he says, then, if, then though you are evil, he's doing this comparison between us as earthly parents and then our Father in heaven. If you are, you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will God or the Father, who is perfect, he's perfect, the one in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask him. He's doing this incredible comparison. If you're, you know, you know how to give good gifts, even though you are an evil, human, flawed imperfect parent, you still give good gifts to your kids, how much better, how much more does the Father in heaven who's perfect give to you because he loves you? If you and I could allow that to settle in. Now, I know this doesn't apply to everybody, but if you have kids, whatever, whatever age you ki- your kids are, if you're planning to have kids someday, you know that you have a certain window of time with your kids. You know, the average is 18 to 20 years. They're going to be in your household. And so you know in that, that time, you want to invest in them because when they leave your house, you want to make sure that they leave your household fully equipped for the life they're going to live. So you're telling them about Jesus. You're wanting them to follow the Lord with their life. You're wanting them to, to learn and to grow and develop as human beings and be kind to each other and not fight with each other and learn eventually how to hold a job and show up to work on time and maybe get a bank account and buy a car and learn to drive, all those things. You're doing all this. Why? Because you love your kids, and when they leave your house, you want them to be fully equipped. Now think on a much broader scale. The God of the universe, who loves us more than we even love our own kids, has called us to live a life that's way beyond our ability, but loves us so much, says, I'm going to equip you and give you everything you need to live the life that I've purposed you to live through the presence of my spirit in you. 
why in the world would you and I not accept that gift? Why would we not ask, seek, and knock after that gift? It's a no-brainer. We want the Holy Spirit's work in our life. We want, what, when we get squished and squeezed by life, we want the fruit of the Spirit to come out. We don't want hell to come out. We want heaven to come out. When we reach the point where we're serving God's mission and we're way beyond our own means and we're way beyond our own ability, God shows up and does amazing and powerful things. Why? Because His, His Spirit is present in us. That's what Jesus is talking about. He wants to give us this gift. The problem is, are you and I willing and ready to receive the Holy Spirit? Now, if you said yes to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, but the question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? Have you fully surrendered so that you're saying, I'm all in, I'm off the bench, I'm in his mission, I'm beyond myself, I want to see him produce fruit in my life, I'm no longer going to hold back, I'm going to surrender fully and allow him to fill me. And if he gives me the gift of tongues, or he gives me another spiritual gift, or he makes me feel a little uncomfortable, that's okay. Because it's God's power showing up in my life. So this is what I'm going to do to close our service. I'm going to pray that God would fill us with his spirit. And I'm going to do that so that I'm doing it intentionally. We're not going to have the worship team come back up and set the mood with music, you know, make the emotions just right. So we, No, we're not going to do that. Because the demonstration of God's power in his, through His Holy Spirit in our lives is not going to be demonstrated in this room. It's going to be demonstrated when we walk out the door. It's going to be demonstrated if we're getting off the bench. It's going to be demonstrated when we get squeezed by life this week. Have I surrendered and am I asking, am I seeking, am I knocking that God would fill me with His Spirit every single day? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words. We thank you that we have a Father in heaven who loves us deeply. And because of that, he sent your spirit to work in us, to be in us, to transform us, to bring power, to bring fruit, to bring gifts, those things that we can't do in our own humanity. Because, Lord Jesus, we know that when you say to us, follow me, you are asking us to follow you in way over our head. You are asking us to think a certain way and do things that we know are not possible in our own ability. That's why we need the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I ask right now, and in, in Lord, is just in our openness, Lord, I pray, first of all, you break through our fears, our misunderstandings, Lord, that you would come, and we know that you don't come by formula, you come by power. And so, Lord, however you choose to come and to breathe your spirit and to activate your spirit inside of us today, you do that, Lord. If you want to bring the gift of tongues to people today, then bring the gift of tongues. If you want to bring them power so that when they face temptation that they've struggled with, they no longer are overwhelmed, but your power overwhelms the temptation. Lord, if you want to bring your power in such a way that maybe for the first time some of us who've only sat on the sidelines of Christianity now know that, God, you've called us beyond comfort. You've called us beyond what's easy. You've called us into the game, into your purpose and your mission, that you would do that today. That, Lord, this week we would see the evidence every day of the presence of the good gift that your Father has given to us, and that is the work and the power of your Spirit in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. Lord, we ask, we seek, we knock, and we know that you will answer, you will open, we will find, Lord, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.